Oh. Greetings, metalheads, and welcome to another episode of Here Lies Metal, the podcast that brings you the origins, history, and culture of everything metal. I am Maledix, and I will be the overlord for today and all of eternity. Now, before we begin, I have decided to share a little story with you about how this came about. I didn't choose to bear the burden, the monumentous task of being the scribe to all heavy metal. This noble yet challenging task was bestowed upon me by the elder gods above, or perhaps it was the demons below. We're not sure. I was sitting there at my desk one day, mindlessly wasting my life away before the computer that was slowly absorbing my soul. Then suddenly, a bolt of lightning was blasted into my eyes, and it spoke to me. This demonic voice told me that I was to be the documenter and scribe of all things metal, and I did not question. It was at that moment the voice spoke and said, Rise, Maledictus, and bring forth the epic of metal to all mortal ears. And I swore from that point on, I alone would bear the burden of serving as metal's scribe. And I rose from that uncomfortable chair and lobbed my coffee cup into the misery machine before me as it exploded into a great cathartic fireball of freedom. The chains were now broken, so without looking back, I found the nearest microphone began to speak the gospel of the other gods. So unleashing the metal, this podcast, here lies metal, upon all those who would listen. I actually got that from Ghostbusters 2, where Vigo possesses Janusz when he's looking at the, when he's cleaning the painting and telling Vigo how beautiful it is. He's like, I am Vigo, scourge of Carpathia, I command you. He goes, yes, Lord, command me, command me, Lord. And I, I got the hammer part, the, the coffee cup part from the Macintosh commercials. Not original at all. However, let me know about your fantastic uh, stories about you quitting your job on um, herelivesmetal at gmail.com. Let us know. Share with us. We'd like to hear. We'd like to hear your opinions. We'd like to hear how you feel about this podcast. Anyway, as a scribe of metal, by heavenly mandate, my position, my job, my undertaking, I am tasked to seek, interpret, and translate many ancient texts of the metal epic and as a result of this massive undertaking i do misinterpret facts from time to time and i will surely do this in the future remember i am not only teaching you about metal but i'm also learning so sometimes i make mistakes however i'm going to correct these mistakes with uh, an errata in, uh, in the beginning of every episode because i'm sure to make mistakes on every episode we'll get better though so here we go last episode i began the playlist with a thin lizzie song titled johnny from the 1977 album Johnny the Fox I said that was an early example of metal that had inspired new wave British heavy metal bands I was incorrect about that that song should have been a Thin Lizzy song from 1975 called Ballad of a Hard Man from the Fighting album which is a much better example of the origins of early metal than the 1977 album from Johnny the Fox for the song Johnny would be so I'm correcting that I noticed that I'm like that's not correct also I declared the band Exciter, they're a metal band from Canada, which we'll do an episode on, uh, as a forebearer to hair metal in the 80s, um, which is totally incorrect. They are much heavier than that, much more aggressive. They're more of a forebearer to bands like Man of War and a lot of thrash bands rather than hair metal. If you're looking for forebearers to hair metal in the new wave British heavy metal era, you can consider bands such as Tokyo Blade, Def Leppard, obviously, Anvil, Tigers of Pantang, and even Motley Crue, which I realized it dawned upon me that their first album was in 1981, Too Fast for Love, which is a very heavy album. 
They gained their rise during the new wave British heavy metal era, so I'm not afraid to put them in that era as an influential band. And yes, obviously, they really kicked off the hair metal craze. Um, there's also a lot of influence, obviously, from the hard rock scene at going on at the time, such as Van Halen, Kiss, most notably, very uh, precursors to hair metal, and also the original glam scene of the early 70s. All right, moving on. It's funny how the lines were so blurred in 1981 when I look back and how all metal bands and metal fans could coexist. They would all go to the same shows. It wouldn't matter what you were into, what genre you were into. It all kind of crossed over. And the 80s would be a time of division in metal. MTV and Hollywood make sure of this. They really solidified the lines of metal, made them stronger. We have to give thanks to the hair metal crash of the early 90s, however, even though all metal suffered during this time, it was time to burn the house down and start over. And that's what that did. It brought a lot more unity in the scene in various forms of metal. And it for, sort of forced metal to get heavier in the mainstream. Also, I forgot to add the band in the playlist, Girls' School. Now, Girls' School was an all-female, a new wave British heavy metal era band with a really amazing sound. Um, they did a lot of things with Motorhead. They did duets with Motorhead. They toured with Motorhead. So they are completely legit in every way. Their first record is called Demolition, released in 1980. Uh, you definitely have to check it out. So Girl School. I do apologize for not adding Girl School to the list. They should have been in the core New York British Heavy Middle part of that list. So All Hail Girl School, a quartet of very badass ladies that know how to rock and roll. And they are welcome in this massive sausage party we call New Wave British Heavy Metal. Welcome. Now, once again, we're going to do the news. We're going to do this every week. We're going to do the most recent news stories in metal. And there are a few stories that are in metal media going on right now at large. And the metal media has been covering during the week. And they obviously, they all copy off each other. So we're going to be no different. We're just going to repeat the stories that they report and put our own maledictin spin on these particular stories. It is now time for the Here Lies Metal, Metal News. Sadly, this week, Dolores Eriordan, Eriordan, that's a complicated Irish name to say, has passed away at the young age of 47. Eriordan was best known for her vocals for the Irish alternative band The Cranberries, recognized for a series of hits back in the 1990s, including the politically charged track Zombie, Eriordan had recently collaborated with the band Bad Wolf to lay down the vocals for their cover of her hit, Zombie, at the time of her death. Now you're wondering, well, how was she metal? Well, I always thought that song was kind of had a heavy charge to it, and I think she's pretty legitimate to mention in this. She was a very good artist, and we give her credit. And rest in peace, Dolores O'Riordan. You were pretty awesome. Next story. Johnny Depp, actor Johnny Depp, might be considering a new career as the guitarist for the mainstream shock rocker Marilyn Manson. That's right. The A-list movie star is, of course, no stranger to rock and roll as he plays lead guitar for the all-star rock band Hollywood Vampires, along with Joe Perry and Alice Cooper. Besides playing the role of Eddie in Tom Petty's tragic epic about the rock and roll dream in Hollywood, or the lack of it, Depp has been dipping his, his pedicured toes in the rock and roll swamp for much of his career collaborating with notable rock heroes such as Shane McGowan of the Pogues, Patti Smith, Oasis, Gibby Hines, and even Flea. Depp would be replacing recently dismissed Manson guitarist Twiggy Ramirez. 
In more sad news, Canadian rock icons Rush have officially stated that they are officially donezo, finito, done, retired, after a 40-plus year career of making rock and metal accessible to nerds like myself, the Toronto native trio has made the announcement upon the, rec- upon the reclusive drummer drumming god Neil Peart's decision to call it quits after a long career of frustrating the musically feeble-minded and, the politically so- and politically socialists alike. I'm not implying political socialists are feeble-minded in any way here. However, Leoport was a known libertarian and probably is responsible for Russia's very Ayn Rand-inspired lyrics. I think it's him. I think he's the guilty party. I don't think Getty and Alex really give a shit about that kind of thing. Now we have to face it. The bands we grew up with are getting old, and they're retiring, and they're even dying. It's part of life. But that's why we treasure their records as small slices of music history that will exist for all of eternity. Aliens will find these records when the human race is long extinct and wonder, what the fuck was Metallica thinking when they made Saint Anger? And that is the news. Uh, I got to see Rush um, for their 40th year tour, so I'm glad I finally, I got to see them right before they ended. And Rush, of course, is a great band, and they have a major influence in metal. And we will do a show on prog rock influence and metal, on prog rock in general, because I like prog rock so much. However, they really drew the gap closer, especially a band like Rush. I think Rush is a bridge band between prog rock and metal. So hail Rush, and you guys will be legends forever. They will build statues to all of you. And now for the podcast. Welcome to the first Here Lies Metal episode of Essential Metal. Every so often, you listen to a record that changes your life. Yet, as the years go on, it becomes more apparent that nearly everyone in the metal community shares your fascination with this particular title. Elevating such a record to a universal language spoken and communicated by those who love metal. This unique collection of albums possess the power to be timeless and immortal in relevance among a particular genre or among metal at large. This is the collection of records displayed upon the black stone walls of the grand fortress of the metal gods in the underworld. And in the ongoing epic of metal, it is these very albums that I decree Ascension Metal. Let us begin. The year is 1979. And metal is having a good run so far, as we discussed in the previous episode. Yet, on the other side of the world, one of metal's most iconic but unintentional founders wasn't invited to the party. In fact, he was kicked out of the party by the very band that unleashed all of this madness. Far, far away in a seedy Los Angeles hotel room, a hopeless future of drunken oblivion, likely followed by a lonely death, inevitably waited our hero. It was a type of death where they don't find your decomposing corpse until the the cleaning crew complains of a foul odor emanating from your ransacked hotel room. Under the effects of month-long drinking binge, which wasn't unusual for the 30-year-old former Black Sabbath frontman, Ozzy wasn't totally out of the game yet. Ozzy was still bound by a legal contract with Don Arden's Jet Records, whom he had signed upon his untimely dismissal from Black Sabbath. Like most record labels attempting to turn a profit, 
Jet Records likely expected a record from the booze-soaked vocalist, which unless Ozzy had been recording himself vomiting, which might have sounded something like the Ultimate Sin record, he had nothing for them, and therefore he owed them money. As you know, Ozzy Osbourne was was holed up in a seedy Los Angeles hotel room, doing nothing but drinking. He was basically trying to drink himself to death after his dismissal from Black Sabbath. He had nothing. He, he needed a kick in the ass. Otherwise, he was eventually just going to die up there. So how did the story of Ozzy start? This is where the story of Ozzy started. It was in this shitty hotel room in Los Angeles. This is what made Ozzy today. If it wasn't for this moment... Ozzy would have just faded into nowhere. Maybe he would have survived and just ended up nowhere. Maybe he would have died and we would have had a very different future. We wouldn't have had this Prince of Darkness persona created. Maybe uh, maybe Bill Ward would have risen to be an iconic metal hero as a singer of a couple of Black Sabbath songs. Maybe it would be him that you would be calling the Prince of Darkness today. Imagine that, the Bill Ward fest. Or maybe it would have been Ron James Dio to carry on the Sabbath name as an iconic figure that held Black Sabbath together, and maybe Black Sabbath would have been a more stable project throughout its career through the following years. Obviously, Sabbath really wouldn't start getting recognized again until the late 90s when Ozzy had rejoined them. But who knows? Think of a different alternate history. Write in your opinions on alternate metal histories at herelivesmetal at gmail.com. Maybe we should do an episode on alternate metal history. What could have happened? This sounds interesting. We should look into that. Anyway, enter Sharon Arden, daughter of Jet Records owner Don Arden. She was sent by Daddy to protect their investment and make sure he didn't drink himself to death while securing any lost revenue in the process. After repeated visits to her father's investment, the rebellious heiress allegedly succumbed to Ozzy's boyish charms, kicking off Ozzy and Sharon's lifelong partnership that would be Ozzy's salvation. Yes. I know a lot of people in metal do not like Sharon Osbourne for various reasons. She sort of rules Ozzy with an iron fist. She rules their business with an iron fist. Uh, people in metal uh, having really bad things to say about Sharon Osbourne and dealing with her. However, if you like Ozzy Osbourne, he would not be here today if it wasn't for Sharon Osbourne. He would be dead somewhere or unknown. She launched, She relaunched his career. It takes her. She's the one that wrangles him. She keeps him upright. If it wasn't for her, he would not have a solo career. Write in. Here lies metal at gmail.com. Write in your opinions on what you think Sharon Osborne's effect uh, in Ozzy's career was, if it was significant or not. However, I think if it wasn't for her, we would not have an Ozzy Osborne. We would have a bloated corpse somewhere and many times over, not just in this situation. If he had survived this situation, he would have died somewhere else. He was... The Grim Reaper was traveling at full throttle after Ozzy Osbourne. If it wasn't for Sharon holding it off. So she believed in this guy and stayed with him despite all of his shortcomings and drunken rages. So we have to give Sharon Osbourne credit for giving you what metal is today. So all hail Sharon Osbourne, whether you like her or not. Interestingly enough, Ozzy had actually left Black Sabbath in 1978 in a failed attempt to start a solo project with former members of the band Necromantis by the name of Blizzard of Oz, a name suggested by Osborne's father. Under contract for an album under Jet Records, this project was about to become a reality. Meanwhile in Black Sabbath, Ozzy had been replaced by ex-Rainbow frontman Ronnie James Dio, 
and, in, and were in the studio recording a new album at the time, dashing any of Sharon's hopes of Ozzy's eventual reconciliation and reunion with the band. However, what better mov- motivation for the defunct frontman than to steal the thunder from his former band's first attempt at metal in the new decade? Tasked with the occupation of being Osborne's official handler in business, music, disciplinary, and sobriety, though usually unsuccessful with that, Arden presented few ideas for the rekindling of Ozzy's music career. She had originally suggested the, the band to be named Son of Sabbath, which Saren might be good at the business side of things, but uh, stay out of the name, Sharon. That's a, that's a pretty awful name, and Ozzy, of course, rejected the name as he does not want to be associated with his former band that he left on such poor terms. I think that's understandable. Another conceptual idea by Arden was for the formation of a supergroup featuring Thin Lizzy's backbone guitarist Gary Moore, However, Moore ultimately declined after dealing with Ozzy's antics. In other words, Moore basically felt sorry for Osborne. He was he realized Osborne was kind of like a pathetic drunk and really didn't want to deal with him and really just tried out for the band just to appease Sharon and to make Ozzy feel good. Imagine what uh, the Blizzard of Oz and Ozzy's project and Ozzy's future would have been with Gary Moore instead of Randy Rhodes. That would have been a really interesting alternate metal history. We're crossing a lot of possible alternate metal paths alternate metal history paths here on this episode. I think we're covering some interesting ground. Blizzard of Oz would eventually be formed as a supergroup, however, a very different kind of supergroup than they originally had in mind. Instead of a supergroup of well-known musicians, it would be a supergroup of famous background musicians from great bands. For example, on bass, we had the perhaps little-known Bob Daisley, formerly of Rainbow, However, Bob Daisley would prove to be a writing master, and of course, if you ever heard the sound of Bob Daisley's bass, it is one of the best sounds, I think, in metal at that time. Bob Daisley is one of the most underappreciated and underrated bass players in all of metal, and he still lives today. Definitely someone that should be put on a pedestal like you would Cliff Burton or Steve Harris or or any other famous bass players you could think of in metal. I, I think Bob Daisley has his place there, and a lot of people don't give him that credit. So he definitely deserves it, and you're going to hear it today in the playlist. On drums, you had Lee Kerslake from Uriah Heep. If you ever listen to Uriah Heep in the 1970s, which we will do a podcast on, very important band, we didn't include them in the new wave of British heavy metal uh, precursors, the early part of the playlist, because I simply didn't have room. There were other bands I wanted to choose besides Uriah Heep. However, they are very significant, and we will do an episode regarding Uriah Heep as as influencers of metal. Later on in their careers, Lee Kerslake and Bob Daisley would be involved in a lawsuit against the Osbournes for credits and royalties, but we're going to get into that later in the podcast. On keyboards, you had the Keyboard player of metal, that would be Don Airy. Don Airy was also in Rainbow, and anytime metal needed keyboards, synths, Don Airy was the guy. Don Airy is currently in Deep Purple. He had replaced John Lord after his death and is pretty much a full-time member now. He was the bridge where synths crossed into metal, and Don Airy was usually the guy to do that. A lot of, a lot of metal bands avoid synths, but when they needed synths and some bands welcomed synths. Black Sabbath welcomed synths in their later albums. 
Ozzy Osbourne always welcomed synths. He liked the cutting-edge sound. I believe uh, it was Rick Wakeman that played synths for Black Sabbath. Ozzy was always very progressive when it came to new technology in his music. He always welcomed synths. That would only increase over time, over his career. Um, And finally, you would have a name that would end up in the most iconic sounds of all of guitar and metal and all of guitar and probably history. This was a little-known 23-year-old guitar prodigy named Randy Rhodes, formerly of Quiet Riot. Now, Randy didn't really get to shine in Quiet Riot, which he helped perform two years previously. He was very limited in Quiet Riot. However, when he joined the Blizzard of Oz, Ozzy's new project, he was allowed by other writer Bob Daisley to really, to really show his talents and really to play whatever he wanted. He wasn't really held down by any limits that Quiet Riot uh, subjected him to. You really got to see his talents, his background in classical guitar really come out. Every song he's on is almost like he's soloing throughout the whole song. It almost seems like it isn't even a set thing that he's playing. It's almost like he's playing something different every time. It's just this freeform run that goes for the whole song that accents Bob Daisley's bass and Lee Kerslake's drums and Ozzy's voice. And unfortunately, we only had this sound for two albums. I think every following Ozzy guitar player, whether it was Jake Lee or Zach Wilde, I think they really are based... They're really basing their sound on what Randy Rhodes laid down. They're trying to replicate that, and they still are to this day. Uh, When Randy Rhodes joined the band, um, uh, a drunken and and inebriated Ozzy Osbourne, which was usually the case for Ozzy Osbourne, he was usually drunk or high at the time. Uh, Basically, Randy Rhodes got the job before he even started playing. He was simply playing warm-up riffs. He wasn't even playing the real measure of his talent in front of Ozzy, just playing a few chords Ozzy was so drunk and high, he was. Ozzy basically said, oh, "Guy's fucking amazing. Everything he's playing, I can't believe fucking. He's fucking amazing." So Ozzy basically gave him the job on the spot. It's like you know, you go for a job interview and you're out there in the office, and they just like the way you look or they like the way you talk, and they're like, "You're hired." You didn't even take an interview. So that that's what Randy Rhodes was to Ozzy, and I guess Ozzy's drunken idiocy really helped in this point. He made a good decision there without even hearing him play. Imagine if if Randy Rhodes didn't get the job. Imagine if they gave the job to, like, Kirk Hammett or something. Blizzard of Oz would have been pretty terrible. There would have been a lot of wah-wah. Ultimately, the Blizzard of Oz would be formed. Upon completing the formation of this formidable lineup, the Blizzard of Oz was now ready to cut their first record. Following the writing of the music and lyrics by Rhodes and Daisley and Osborne, when he wasn't passed out underneath the drum riser, at the, at the live-in rehearsal studio in Mammoth, Wales, the newly formed quartet began recording, actually recording the album after it was written in a rehearsal studio at Ridge Farm Studios in 1980. This was the point in Rhodes' career where his guitar playing got to shine, as he was given freedom to really play what he wanted by other chief writer Bob Daisley, for his work with Quiet Riot had been criticized as being very dull, and he didn't really need to rely on his true classical training. One of the interesting aspects about the writing and the recording of Blizzard of Oz was the fact they were critical on the fact that most metal songs are in E or A. They wanted to, they were, Daisley, with the help of Ozzy and Rhodes, wanted to change this. They wanted to make very dynamic songs, exploring the entire staff, the entire scale, which would be a, a very unique thing to do back then. It was almost progressive. 
That's why the Blizzard of Oz album has such a unique sound, and it's so different from all metal at the time, from all of the new wave British heavy metal at the time. It's such a unique, shining diamond. Upon the Blizzard of Oz eventual release, positive critical reception had helped vindicate Ozzy's dismissal from his previous band, Black Sabbath, and just in time to challenge the aging Black Sabbath who had released their latest title, Heaven and Hell, fronted by Ron James Dio, months earlier and hoped to restore their reign as metal gods. Interestingly enough, the album was released with the title Blizzard of Oz and Ozzy Osbourne on the cover, as you could probably see the album artwork. However, the band was supposed to be called Blizzard of Oz. Yet, Ozzy Osbourne's name was printed bigger than Blizzard of Oz, so people basically thought the it was Ozzy Osbourne and the album was called Blizzard of Oz, which it was self-titled. But however, that was supposed to be the name of the band, Blizzard of Oz. That They would keep the name of the band Blizzard of Oz for the first two albums. After a major lineup change by album three, the Ozzy's solo project was basically just called Ozzy Osbourne. And that's the origin story. That's the origin story of Ozzy's first album. The Blizzard of Oz and his first project, also called The Blizzard of Oz, and amazing musicians that made this album possible, and the amazing people that made this album possible. So now that you know the history of the making of this essential metal album, let's now hear what made this record a part of metal history, and let's begin the playlist. And here we go, in its entirety, or abbreviated entirety, we're probably not going to go through the entire songs, but let's begin with The Blizzard of Oz, Essential Metal on Here Lies Metal. I am Maledictus. This song is the opening track. You see, let me lower that a little bit. Back in the day, there used to be records. I know a lot of you know that because records are just as strong as they were today as they were back then. However, the order of a song mattered a lot back then. Today, in the world of MP3s and digital stream music, order means nothing. You could have a song on demand, any song you want. You could listen to any song on the album. If you purchase a song, you don't have to purchase the entire album. It's almost we're back to the days of singles. However, in the days of LPs, an album like this, you had to have songs in the right place. And this song, I don't know, enters the album. It pushes you into the album. It explodes you into the album. The most powerful song was usually reserved for the first spot for most bands. And that is what we have here. We have the most strongest and in-your-face song called I Don't Know. Now, listen to Randy's guitar. It's almost like it's a constant solo. It's, it's basically a five-minute solo. The only thing that he's sharing with Daisley is the key. They're playing in the same key. However, they've both taken their independent roads, no pun intended, on this particular song. And listen to Daisley. Daisley's got a sort of a drum-inspired bass line, a bouncy kind of one four-on-the-floor bass line following Kerslake's amazing drums. Uh, Ari, of course, is not on this album. He was basically a studio musician and only on a few of the songs. However, this song couldn't be a more perfect opener, and this song really gets you in the mood for the Blizzard of Oz album. I don't know is... I don't know of this song. 
I don't know, but I don't know is a song that's also very dynamic. It has light parts, it has, heavy, it has fast parts. It immediately goes into a light part. This was, I think in 1980, 1981, this was a fairly new method of a metal song. And a lot of metal bands would follow this style following. We had maybe Iron Maiden and Judas Priest really exploring this style of a song arrangement. And that's what makes bands like Ozzy, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest deal. That's what makes them just metal. What genre is this in metal? It's just metal. Ozzy is a perfect example of just metal. He's just metal. He was not included in the new wave of British heavy metal lineup because he was already a veteran. He was not new. That's why he was British and he was metal, but he was not new. So Ozzy was, did not count in the new wave of British heavy metal. And even this, this album did not count in the era. It was a separate thing, as was someone like Dio. My, my musical categorization can get very convoluted, but we're going to do this together. We're going to fight this battle together, people. We're going to catalog metal, and we're going to be the scribes of metal together. And I'm going to teach you everything I know and everything I find out in my research. Let's move to the next song. This, of course, was... I would say this was the biggest single of this album. This is really the song that's identified with this album. It's the single. It was this and I believe Suicide Solution, which got pressed in a different way, that were the singles on the Blizzard of Oz. This guitar riff, of course, is legendary. The solos in this song are legendary, and we'll get to them. But this song basically continues the party from I Don't Know, perhaps on a more of an upbeat way, whereas I Don't Know might be a little ominous. It might have a little bit of an ominous feel. This song has a very positive metal feel. You could call this posy metal. Another another uh, theory of a genre I've been coming up with. Posy metal. This is an uplifting song. Maybe makes you want to do exercise. But let's listen to the musicians. It's a pretty solid song. It, again, you have Rhodes really independent from the rest. He is really an accent on the bass and drums machine that are Daisley and Kurzlake. Daisley and Kurzlake were, I think, the perfect rhythm section team, where you had you had Randy Rhodes as this amazing accent, this completely dynamic accent that was dancing around this rhythm section and in a very unique way that would only, like I said, try to be replicated by Ozzy's, Ozzy's uh, succeeding guitar guitarist, Jake Lee and ultimately Zach Wilde, who is still with Ozzy to this day. You ever see the, going on a tangent, you ever see the evolution of Zach Wilde when Ozzy had first started working with him in the late 80s, he looked like this you know, very innocent-looking, typical blonde rocker with long blonde hair. And now he's this just brutal, uh, this Viking with a, this he has this berserker appearance, appearance with a, this long beard. He looks like this, you know, disheveled Viking warrior. It's really come a long way. It's amazing what time and metal does to a person. I guess the same could be said about someone like me. If you see pictures of me in 1989, you wouldn't recognize me as I am today or even pictures of me 10 years ago. Metal has an effect on people. We're, of course, here 
in the Blizzard of Oz, we are at an early stage of metal. And metal would come a long way. However, this album, as an essential album, would continue to influence metal forever. And it still has a major effect today. And one important thing about being essential metal is it's relevant today. No one listens to this album and calls it dated. There's nothing dated. It's, there's no... It's not like, say, hair metal, which, of course, became dated very quickly. Because usually when something is completely ridiculous, when it's so extreme, it becomes dated. It, has, it loses its appeal. This album is very solid. And you will hear that if you haven't heard this album. If this is the first time you're hearing this album for some reason. You will hear that as we go on. Okay, we're going to move to the next track. This song is a ballad. It's not even a power ballad, it's just a ballad. And of course we get to hear Randy's more classically influenced guitar with those very full chords he's playing. And Ozzy of course was never afraid to bring it down. He did so many times in Black Sabbath. This song of course is about Ozzy's departure and eventually his realization that Sabbath is done. I'm done with that. This is my new project, and goodbye to what I had before, but now it's time to move on. This is the perfect song to that. I think a lot of headbangers at the time used it as a breakup song, and I suppose it could be used as that as well. It's a song has is a multi-purpose ballad without power, an unpower ballad. Nevertheless, we also later on in the song get to hear Don Airy's keyboards, his synths, uh, with a very nice accompaniment towards the end of the coda of the song, and you'll hear that. We'll we'll go to that. We'll do this full song so you can hear Don Airy. But in the meantime, Ozzy has this vocal style, and you get to hear him a little clearer in this since the rest of the band is toned down a little bit. Uh, I think Ozzy, for his entire career, has a certain effect on his voice. It's this echoey chorus on his voice, and it really assists his vocals. If you listen to some of Ozzy's material in his Black Sabbath years, uh, you might not hear this style used yet. And I don't know whose idea this was in the production. However, it's a voice, it's an effect that really works with Ozzy's voice. It almost makes it larger, and it's still an effect today. And you wonder that this very effect is keeping Ozzy's voice afloat today. For I imagine it's very difficult for a 69-year-old to really keep vocals going on. These, it's, a, it's a very powerful voice. It's a very good voice. Uh, whoever wants to dismiss Ozzy as a non-singer is is wrong. Ozzy's a, actually a very talented vocalist. Um, as for his writing skills, I, I think that might be better credited to the musicians he's working with as especially during these years, Ozzy was usually passed out drunk during the making of this album. It was really getting frustrated for his other bandmates who were there to make an album. Ozzy's like a child. He's like a very talented child that you have to sort of, um, you have to encourage him. You have to give him encouragement to work. That's really where Sharon came in. So, like I said before, if you really want to bash Sharon, and a lot of people do, she is holding Ozzy up here and she made this album possible. So we'll always give her credit for this terrific essential metal album. No matter what she did in the future, and no matter what a menace she would be to the metal world. But this is a very 
good power ballad. I'm sorry, I have to keep talking to this song or we will get a DRM. You realize that. So I am shoveling out words out of my brain into your ears. So Here Lies Metal can continue to broadcast. Now, as you know, uh, whatever you think about this song, whatever you think about my podcast so far, give me feedback. Um, Twitter at Here Lies Metal. Here Lies Metal gmail.com uh, find us on Instagram at Metal Lies Here find us on Facebook Here Lies Metal uh, communicate with us this is a call to action communicate with us tell us about this show tell us how you think my stories are my information the information I'm giving you is it wrong? I try to find errors in my podcasts as I'm listening to them at work the next day and I'm like oh I did that wrong that was awful however I want you to point out things, too. You guys are metal experts, too. I know there's some metal scribes out there that maybe are listening, and they're not doing anything. Well, help me out here. You guys are always welcome. You, out there, this is for you. Now, the song is coming to a close. Um, Don Airy's keyboard part is coming up, and I really look forward to this part, because this is a perfect ending to such a song. I have to keep talking. This, um... I believe it's a mini Moog. I have to ask my friend who is a synth expert. I have to get, get analysis as to what particular synth this is. But that is the work of Don Airy. Endings this song on a terrific note. It really wraps up the song perfectly. Now, let's move on to the next song. Quite the best ballad ever in metal. This song is sort of a filler in a way. It's really an example of Randy's expertise as a classical guitarist, as opposed to um, um, a guitar metal god of the day. He was also someone with someone with a tremendous amount of classical training, like the best musicians always are. You could say the same about all of your best, all of your favorite musicians. A lot of them had classical training. Like Cliff Burton would be an example. He really brought a lot to a band like Metallica. Well, Randy Rhodes is doing the same here. And this almost sounds like some sort of uh, classical thing that you would read off of off of a sheet and play alone. And this song, of course, is called D. Just D. Now, this song, as we know, this song got Ozzy into some trouble, as we talked about two episodes ago on the Satanic Panic episode. This song, of course, is called Suicide Solution. Now, for the untrained ear, that might sound like a solution. Suicide is the solution. It's the answer to all your problems. And if you're taking these words and you're not listening to them very closely, that might be the message you got. When I heard this song as a young child at 12, when I first heard this album, this song sounded like trouble to me. I, I was... I was very cautious listening to it. I thought the subliminal messages would get me. I knew they were there. Just the tone of the song, the beat, the boat, boat, the that four on the floor beat between Kurzlake and Daisley, which is a reoccurring theme in this album. It, it's it's the classic metal sound. It's that it, it, it's that tough stomp sound, and that's what made the song sound evil to me. That, that's what that, to me that was the sound of a song that was bad for you. It, it was that. Of course it was harmless, however it didn't sound like that when I was 12. Now this song of course was about the dangers of drinking, which Ozzy was so good at in 1981. He was really good at drinking, 
And usually when people have a problem, I think, they know what the problem is. And they could sing about it. And I believe the song was written, of course, about Ozzy's friend and a lot of people's friend at the time, Bon Scott, who was the singer of ACDC, who passed away due to drinking. I believe he actually froze to death in his car on a cold Scotland night. He didn't actually drink himself to death, but he had passed out in his car and died of hypothermia, which you can ultimately blame the alcohol. But this was really an ode to his friend Bon Scott. I'm pretty sure, I believe that was the reason. Usually every song has a story behind it. I believe that is the ultimate story. The song does not have any subliminal messages. It has no devil worshiping. It's not telling you to kill yourself. It's saying, hey, if you're gonna drink as much as me, um, you know, be careful, cause you might die. Let me drink some water, for that matter. If you drink as much water as me, you'll live. And you'll piss a lot. Now this part is the specific part of this song that was pointed out by the prosecutor in this civil trial. I don't have his name for you. However, he claimed that this particular part had subliminal messages and Ozzy is basically saying, get the gun, get the gun, shoot, 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 get the gun, get the gun, shoot, shoot, shoot. And that, of course, is not, it's basically some ad-libbing, uh, I believe he's saying, get the lips out or some something of that nature. It really doesn't have any significance to the song. It's just filler. And that's really all it is. It's really a great song. It is also a single along with Crazy Train. Let's move on to this next awesome song that is about a hero of metal that we will go over in the future. And this, of course, features the wicked keyboard synth playing of metal's keyboard player, metal's premier keyboard player and synth master, Don Airy. This uh, couldn't be a more uh, awesome intro to such a song about, of course, the famous Aleister Crowley. What a metal theme. You really can't bring a more metal theme into a metal song. Mr. Crowley, of course, Aleister Crowley, uh, he was born in the early 1900s. He was a famous occultist. He was basically a very bored, rich English guy with nothing else to do. So he started being an occultist. I don't think he was necessarily a devil worshiper. However, he was an occultist and uh, I believe an opium addict and he loved he was a major sexual deviant as well. I think he had a lot of fun. He was kind of like a rock star at the time. A lot of uh, homosexual and heterosexual fun he had in his giant orgies. He owned a house near Loch Ness called the Bullskine House, which we are going to do an episode on. And of course, the famous Jimmy Page would eventually buy this house so he could worship the devil as well because Jimmy Page, of course, is another bored, wealthy Englishman. And that's what bored, wealthy Englishmen do. They worship the devil or become involved with the occult. Of course, the story of Aleister Crowley is a very complex one. He will have his own podcast. His house will have its own podcast. And that, of course, will involve the ridiculous Jimmy Page on how he bought the Bolstein house. But we are doing studies on that because... Aleister Crowley is one very fun and interesting subject of metal. This song, of course, I can't, I, I, I'm not familiar with, with the press Ozzy got on this song. I think maybe the media just didn't notice it because they probably didn't know who Aleister Crowley was or what Mr. Crowley was. However, this song, of course, uh, I would imagine if it were more popular, if it were a single, it would have gotten Ozzy into an equal amount of trouble and they would have 
found someone that killed themselves over this song just as well as almost any song on this record. Okay, let's move on. Very awesome song. One of my favorite songs on this Essential Metal album. This song is, um, I think this song is a deep track. This was not one of the more well-known songs from the Blizzard of Oz album. This is called No Bone Movies, and I believe it's about don't watch jerk-off movies. I mean, if you listen to the words, it seems like it's, hey, you know, it's it's better not to jerk off to these bone They didn't have internet porn back then. They had probably eight millimeter films or whatever those you know they didn't have vcrs back then very likely so this song is seems to be from the lyrical content about hey let's not watch a bunch of porns together when we're on the bus no bone movies tonight because it's going to be weird if you're in this bus this tour bus on tour with the, you have ozzy in there drunk all the time and sharon's probably there too and you know you have randy and and, and Lee and Bob, and they were kind of just sitting there, and you know, just being in a room with a bunch of guys just watching a porn together. That was always weird, wasn't it? You don't want to do that. So I think that's what this song is about. Maybe we should do more research on what this song is about, but he's talking about jerking off clearly in that class, and that it's, it's a suggestion of masturbation, and I'm surprised this song wasn't cited. I think these songs basically just went under the radar and didn't get captured, so... This is the Jerkoff song. I think that's that's kind of a, a controversial topic back in 1981. I don't think a lot of bands or a lot of mainstream bands use such a subject, use such subject matter in their songs and maybe try to avoid that. You certainly wouldn't get a song like this in Metallica's catalog at the time. They, they were not singing about Jerkoff movies. Um, bad 70s porn with mustaches. Oh, this is a good song. This song is might be the most dynamic song on the record. I believe this is a song where Don Airy really got to contribute his writing talents. And this is a longer song. And I believe it's just about the end of the world. Maybe it's almost like the Blackened song. I mean, the end of the world is a popular metal, right? So why not make a song about it? It's called Revelation, Mother Earth. Now, this song has... Uh, an, has an acoustic track where you're really giving Randy Rhodes talent again. You're giving him recognition again for his classical guitar work. This song has a um, a very touching, uh, um, almost a very emotional interlude um, with a piano and a synth. Um, excellent work by Don Airy again. And let's get to that part because it, it, it really just breaks up the song and really gives the song a good feeling. Now the song, the way it's written, doesn't really give me a feel of the end of the world. I figure an end of the world song shouldn't be melancholy like this. I mean, it should be more of a song like Blackened from Metallica. Or this is a more melancholy interpretation of the end of the world. Or maybe it's sort of like a plead against, it's like, don't let the world end. I want the world not to end. I have a lot of drinking to do. I have a lot, I have many years ahead in my career to do fucked up things, to get to piss on the Alamo and to get arrested for drunken publicness, make a couple of bad albums and have an Ozfest and have a bad reality show. Ozzy has a lot more to go. He doesn't want the world to end in 1981. So he's just making that very clear in this melancholy song. Now we're getting up to the interlude here. And like I said, I have to keep shoveling sounds out of my mouth. 
I have to keep shoveling them into your ears. Otherwise, I will get a DRM and Paralyzed Metal will be no more. So I have to keep on talking. That's how we do this. I like this effect here, that synth uh, vocoder. Ozzy likes to do that a lot. That's a pretty cool effect. It's, it's almost cheesy, but Ozzy really liked to use that. He uses that in pretty much all of his first few albums. Ozzy, like I said, is very progressive when it came to new technology. He liked synths. He liked pianos. He liked light parts. Um, and you can hear that in his Black Sabbath songs. Now, here comes the interlude. This is probably um, one of, probably the most complex song on Blazing of Oz. The most epic song. And why not? It's about the end of the world. It's kind of an epic. I like this next part. It starts with a, 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 a lone piano playing with a, a, a string synth accompaniment in, in the back, in the background of that. Uh, really changes things up. They move the guitar, they, they really shut the guitar and bass off, and you really have this sort of a classical composition played on synths and pianos. It, it doesn't sound metal at all, but what a perfect theme. And what a perfect song. This is really the Don Airy here. This is the talents of Don Airy right here. A very emotional part of the song. It's making me sad. I'm almost crying here. I've gotta I've gotta move on to the next song. It's too much. I'm sorry. Now this is a perfect example of a song that basically the the lighter revelation goes right into it. It kind of continues into Steal Away. Steal Away the Night. It's a very upbeat song, very good album ender as we're getting closer to the end of the album. This, of course, is the end of the album, depending on what version of the album you have. If you had the old standard version, this was the last song. It's a very good album ending song. However, if you have the special edition, which we're going to play here, you have another song, um, a song that I only got to hear recently. I had never heard this song in my old days of listening, my original days of listening to Blue Oz. I never got to hear the next song, and I think it's the best song on the album, in my opinion. And if, uh, perhaps this song is a better album ender. However, the next song is a forgotten gem, and let's go right to that. This song, uh, is a really, I'm not sure why they left this song out. I think this song is tremendously catchy. I think it would have made a great single. The song is called You Looking At Me. I don't know what the song is about. It almost sounds like a love song in a way, sort of like an awkward interaction between a guy and a girl. I'm not really sure. However, you have such a, an amazing interaction between the bass and guitar on this song. Uh, it's a really great example of a song for Randy to really run free, as well as probably my favorite sound my favorite example of Bob Daisley's bass playing is in this particular song, where he really gets to shine as a bass player like you've never heard him play before. Has a lot of cowbell in it. This is a good song. It's very catchy. Why it wasn't a single, why it was just forgotten, why it was swept under the rug, I'm not sure. Sometimes they make decisions on the cutting floor to get rid of the best songs on albums, and they just, you never hear them. So fortunately, this album was remastered and they decided to re-include 
this particular song. Now, as you know, there was, and we'll get into this next, but we'll go over this briefly, there was a remastered edition, a, a re-recorded edition, a, a reissue of Blizzard of Oz in 2002, where due to a conflict, due to a legal conflict between Kurz Lake and Baisley and the Osbournes on writing credits and royalties, as a result, they erased their tracks. They eliminated the tracks, the drum tracks of Daisley and Kurz, and the bass tracks of Daisley and the drum tracks of Kurt, Kurz Lake, and overwrote them with Ozzy's current members at the time in 2002, which were, of course, future Metallica bassist Robert Trujillo and Faith No More drummer Mike Borden. They basically replaced the tracks with theirs. And the album wasn't awful. However, it wasn't real. And I think a lot of fans were very upset by it. And they turned it back. They basically eliminated that album. I can't find it anymore. I heard it once. I can't seem to find it on any music streaming sites anymore. They might have eliminated it. However, um, it was an interesting thing. But due to fan outcry, they brought back this and that's what we're listening to here. This is the reissued version. And as you know, this is all the song, basically. There are two other songs, basically outtake songs after this, um, an instrumental version of um, Goodbye to Romance and a couple of other outtakes. However, this is the album in the entirety of it. It's a short album. It isn't a very long album. It's concise. It's to the point. It's the perfect metal album. One of the earliest modern metal albums. It, it of course was released during the new wave of British heavy metal. However, it is not included in that era. It is out of that era, as I said, because Ozzy is already a veteran musician. He is not new. He is British and he is metal, but he is not new. So it's a unique thing. And of course, Ozzy is one of, I could say, he's one of the founders of the just metal genre. Because Ozzy is simply just metal, he is straightforward primitive metal at the most typical, almost cheesy metal theme. There's there's no real, not, not really too much politics in his songs, simply just metal. And that concludes the playlist. Let's go on to the conclusion of this essential metal episode featuring Ozzy Osbourne's album, Blizzard of Oz. Sadly, this iconic and once-in-a-lifetime lineup that can only happen once in, once in a universe, once in a human race, this lineup can occur. It really was amazing. This celebrated lineup that was on the Blizzard of Oz album, the Blizzard of Oz project and album, would be very short-lived. Drummer Lee Kurzlake and bassist Bob Daisley would eventually be dismissed upon Ozzy's follow-up record, Diary of a Bad Man, and, of course, Randy Rhodes would be, of course, as you know, tragically killed in a plane crash during that tour. A guitar god with a brief reign, recording only two records, but unleashing an immortal guitar sound that to this day can't be replicated as many try. You hear Zach Wilde trying still to this day. You hear that Randy Rhodes in his sound. Sort of like a Randy Rhodes and a Tony Iommi in one. That's what you could really consider Jazak Wild with the kind of sounds we hear from him. But what if Randy Rhodes would have lived? 
what if he never would have got on that plane with that coke addicted guy that said he could fly a plane? Imagine if you're like, you're sitting there one day and, and this known cokehead comes up to you and he's like, hey man, I got a plane. Want to get in? Want to get in my plane? Yeah, I did some coke last night, but I go fly around. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get in your plane totally. That's basically what Randy Rhodes did. Him and it was the makeup artist and I think the tour manager. They got in this small plane that wasn't even the the guy flying the plane. It wasn't even his plane. He basically was like, hey, look, an airplane. Oh, look, an airplane. I'll get in it. Hey, who wants to come? Cheers. And they were, so you had this coke-addicted guy, not in the best condition to fly, with four people in a plane buzzing the tour bus at this airport in Florida. Really, you know, this is just rock and roll at the finest and at the worst, of course, as it would turn out. The plane clipped the butt, the wing of the plane basically clipped the bus and crashed and exploded, taking the lives of four people, one of them deservingly for being a dick and basically taking uh, one of the most talented people from us because of his irresponsibility. So if you're a cokehead, people do not take in a plane and ask people to get in the plane with you. Get in the plane alone and fly yourself into the fucking ocean and don't take any guitar gods with you or any other innocent people. But what if Randy Rhodes was alive today? What would music be like if, imagine if this guy didn't only have two albums, imagine if he had 12 albums, what would this guy be? Who would he be involved with today? Think about that. Tell me your opinions. Tell me your theories or your fantasies as to what Randy Rhodes would be today. Here lies metal at gmail.com or tweet it, uh, tw- Twitter. Here lies metal at Twitter. Let me know. Tell me about what you feel about the icon that Randy Rhodes was, this short-lived icon. He did so much in two albums that a guy like um, Kirk Hammond hasn't done in in almost 40 years, stepping with, with his... Uh, his permanently attached wah-wah pedal to his feet. I mean, this this is a guitarist, Randy Rhodes. If one ever lived, this man is a god in the heavens. He's up there. Perhaps it was his voice that told me to be the scribe of metal. It, it was a number of it was a number of icons up there giving me the energy and giving me the motivation to be the scribe of metal. So. All hail Randy Rhodes, and if he would have lived today, he would have certainly ruled upon metal. Now, the Blizzard of Oz would be a turning point in music, totally independent from the new and explosive scene of new wave British heavy metal, as we discussed in episode three. But the album would go on to achieve um, platinum, Four times platinum. It went platinum four times, whatever that involves, and sell six million copies worldwide. Incidentally, in the effort to negate the credits of the original basis, like we had mentioned before, um, and drummer Bob Daisley, Lee Kurzlake, a 2002 reissue of Blizzard of Oz was released with the respective tracks of uh, Daisley and Kurzlake replaced with, like I said, band members at the time. In 2002, Mike Borden of Faith No More and Robert Trujillo, who would be in Metallica. He was, I believe, in Suicidal Tendencies previously. Uh, Their removal and disassociation would result in a legal dispute brought against Ozzy and Sharon for unpaid royalties. Both Ozzy and Sharon have been quoted later, interesting enough, blaming each other for that decision in books they had written for, you know, to capitalize on the whole fucked up nature of their existence. 
and basically it was he said she said uh, no it was it was Sharon and Sharon's like no it was Ozzy she, she it was Ozzy in a drunken state he 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 got rid of the tracks because he didn't he didn't like Bob and Lee and he liked Robert Trujillo better so he put his bass lines all over right and it was it was some of that so um in the end unfortunately for Bob Daisley and Lee Kerr is like this case was dismissed in Ozzy and Sharon's favor and they received nothing good day sir okay Ozzy would of course rise to an iconic status and normalization in mainstream society following a rather turbulent 80s full of substance abuse, domestic violence, and many legal battles over various things, bat eating, um, dove head biting off of Alamo pissing, public drunkenness, drunken publicness, um a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. Um, if you ever see The Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2, I believe, his his bit on that, his little his little bit on that documentary is, is interesting. Uh, of course, he beat the subliminal message trial, as we discussed on episode two. He was accused of putting get the gun, shoot, 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 shoot in the Suicidal Solution song, causing some poor, disturbed youth to kill himself it was not Ozzy's fault of course Ozzy is not a devil worshiper nor is he a proponent of suicide in any way however his time in the 80s of course was full of a lot of problems and we looked upon him as this bad bad man in the 1980s however during the 90s when most classic metal acts say like Judas Priest or Iron Maiden were in a major decline they had lost their lead singers they were not in a good form they were not in good form in the 1990s. Very few metal bands would thrive in the 1990s. And, of course, that might the bands that did were basically Metallica. Even though their, the things they were releasing were pretty bad, they were really all mainstream metalhead. And, of course, you had the rise of a band like Pantera, which would really break all the rules and really adapt to what the metal, the metal sound wanted out of out of music or what music wanted out of the metal sound i think something like pantera answered that and we'll get into that another time of course ozzy of course in the 1990s with the aid of his clever and ambitious wife and business manager not only maintained his metal icon status but ascended to the throne and was declared the prince of darkness and founded a musical festival that still runs today as you know as ozfest uh, this was a musical festival that broke a lot of new bands. A very progressive music festival, I must say. Uh, it wasn't only about mainstream bands. It it always allowed for underground bands, and it still does. There's a lot of bands. I like way lesser known bands that have had access to the Ozfest, which is really, it really is, it really has helped keep metal alive and strong. So we have to give um, Sharon and Ozzy credit for founding this uh concert festival this metal festival that still goes on today ozzy of course continued his successful solo career releasing 10 more albums following blizzard um he had of course his ridiculous reality show which uh, you know of course every metal icon uh, <laughs> eventually had to have 
um, that was the thing back then. Everyone even, you know, whether you were Gene Simmons, Ozzy Osbourne, or Donald Trump, you had a reality show. I'm glad I'm glad that craze is over, right? We don't really get that much anymore in, in 2018. That was more of an early 2000s thing. Um, Ozzy would also give us multiple Black Sabbath reunions. I saw one of them in the late 90s. There would be a couple of them throughout the past decades um, until Black Sabbath finally called it quits, deservingly in 2017, when the band was officially retired after a nearly 50-year run. Uh, ironically, Osborne would also declare retirement from music not once, uh, not twice, but I think maybe three times Ozzy had declared retirement. But however, it feels, um, it appears that uh, this time next year in 2018, this year in 2018, Ozzy will probably be officially retired. I do believe him this time. He is 70 years old. I think when you're 70, it is time to hang it up after you've had a very successful and iconic career like Ozzy Osbourne has had. So there you have it, folks. The Blizzard of Oz was an essential metal album. It is a perfect example of an essential metal album, an album that will always influence metal, that will always be remembered, that will always be relevant. There will be a lot more essential metal album shows to come. This is our first one. Uh, Blizzard of Oz is an appropriate choice for being the first one on the list. However, we will bring you a lot more. Thanks once again for listening to the Here Lies Metal podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and make sure to rate and like us on iTunes. We are, of course, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like I said, be sure to rate us, even if you hate us. Be sure to rate us, even if you hate us. Uh, You can find us on social media, including Twitter at Here Lies Metal, Facebook at Here Lies Metal, Instagram at Metal Lies Here, and of course, contact us. Feel free to contact us on Gmail, herelivesmetal at gmail.com. Tell us what you think of the show. Give us ideas for shows. Ask me questions. Correct my bullshit stories. I am a scribe of metal, but I am also a student of metal, and you might be the teacher. You might be showing me uh, the true story of metal sometimes. Sometimes I get it wrong, but I'm trying here. If you don't like what I'm saying, then you go and make a show. You tell me. You call it Here Doesn't Lie Metal or something. Can you think of a better name than this? Now, finally, don't forget to rate us. If this podcast sucks, only you have the power to destroy it with your bad ratings. So if you want Here Lies Metal to lie down, then it's up to you. Otherwise, I'm going to keep doing the show. Unless everyone, unless I get hate mail every day or bad ratings every day, and you're like, dude, you are terrible. Stop telling us about metal Uh, either everything you're saying is wrong or we don't give a fuck about metal, then maybe I'll stop. But right now, I want your feedback. That's why we do this, okay? Everyone out there, I know you all love metal. So let's all be in this metal thing together. I'm a scribe of metal. I'm going to keep interpreting metal as instructed by the metal gods. Finally, it is my passion to bring you the listener, these tales of metal. However, if you'd like to support the podcast, your donations are highly appreciated, and you can do that on patreon.com forward slash metal. Give a quarter, give a dollar, give ten dollars, give a zillion dollars. But support us because that's what uh, we do today, right? I'm watching Twitch the other day, and people are giving these guys money to play video games. They're not even helping you. I'm informing you, I'm teaching you about metal. 
as instructed by the gods of metal. Uh, the least you could do is donate, donate a little bit of money to your scribe. Anyway, uh, keep being metal, people. Keep listening to metal. Keep making metal. Uh, we will be back next week with something. I've decided what to do. Hey, if you want me to do something, uh, write to me. Say, hey, I want to hear about this. I will check my email, and I will get back to you, and I will tell you if that's a good idea or a bad idea and why. So keep on meddling, people. I am Maledictus, and this was Here Lies Metal. Have a great week.